It's showtime, folks. Son now. Ali to the left. Son on a mission to go alone. This is sensational. World class. podcast we got a great show today we got a movie review with rita cinema judas and the black messiah really good really movie really good very excited about that review but first we're gonna bring in our man achilles rain for the nba seven on seven are you ready to talk some nba achilles Oh, yeah, man. Things aren't going quite the way I'd like to, but I'm still ready to do this. All right. Before we get into how things are going, especially for your team, they're definitely in the seven. We're going to break off a little easy news and notes. Uh, DeMarcus Cousins got released earlier uh, in the week uh, by the Houston Rockets. Um, just curious on your take. You think this is probably it for him? Do you think maybe somebody else might give him another look? Um, I mean, he looked bad for the Rockets, so I, I just find it hard to believe that a contender would definitely give him a look. You know, I know that he didn't quite look, uh, I'm sure, as good as he would have liked to look, especially, you know, being on the fact the fact that it was pretty much a given that he was going to be moving uh, either at the end of the season or even, you know, halfway through the season. Um, but I still think that there's a possibility that he lands on a contender, uh, and that's probably the only possibility that I see. I don't see a team that's in rebuild mode or a team that's you know trying to develop their young players uh, taking a flyer on him. He's just not producing enough. Um, I know that he would serve, you know, kind of as a mentor for the younger guys, but I just don't see it with him. I, I see him going to a contender where you know he could be some sort of role player that they can kind of. Uh, put in or maybe a team that's a contender that has uh, issues with injuries right now. So I still think he lands somewhere. Uh, The question is where? Yeah. uh, The only problem with that is, you know, you'd like him to be there to like bang around a Jokic or an Embiid. And he's just such a bad defender. I I, I don't think he offers you, you know, really that much uh, for those contenders. He might be able to still come in and get you some offense if he can get himself in shape. You know, it's just with that Achilles injury, then blowing out his knee in back-to-back years, it it just, um, for somebody that size, it's just a death knell, really. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not, you know, uh, ideal circumstances uh, to go out the way he has, but I still think he's got enough in the tank to where he's going to have some teams interested in him. Yeah, I'm hoping he does 
find a way to bounce back. Maybe it, it'll take a couple of years like D Rose. Uh, the problem is D Rose did it all while he was young and he had, you know, that little window to sort of find his way back into the league. And I, I don't know if DeMarcus will be given that sort of time to find his way back into the league. No, I think that this is pretty much the last leg of his career. I think that um, for his sake, I hope that a contender picks him up and maybe makes a run with him. But I think that he's pretty much, uh, you know, on his way out. Yeah. Uh, other news and notes. Uh, Flip Saunders Jr. lasted about uh, two years, year and a half. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if it's all that shocking. The Timberwolves weren't uh, all that great. They bring in another Toronto assistant. Uh, apparently, that's the new Spurs. You just grab an assistant of the Toronto Raptors uh, staff. Uh, I, I don't know if that's really an upgrade. I, I Honestly, I don't understand the coach firing. Um, the, were they expecting good things from this team? I don't think either of you are were expecting good things. No, I mean, I don't think we were expecting much from this team. I thought that I didn't think they would be this bad. They're currently sitting at last place uh, in the conference. I didn't think they would be this bad, but I also didn't expect them to be good. So, I mean, there's not really much to say about that now, him being fired. I think it was warranted. I mean, they currently in last place with a record of seven and 24. Um, that's pretty bad. Uh, you, you know, you, you, like I said, I didn't expect them to be much better than they are, but I did definitely expected better than this. Um, it was definitely time for a change. I know that they had really high hopes when they originally hired Saunders that they, they kind of thought that maybe he'd bring in a little of, uh, of his father's, uh, type of aura and energy, but uh, it didn't quite work out for them. So uh, now they're moving on. And uh, it helps to have Kevin Garnett, that aura and energy. Uh, <laughs> it tends to <laughs> it helps a little bit, you know, having a hall of famer tends to help a little bit, but um, now they bring in uh, Chris Finch and um, you know, maybe, maybe they, he can help turn things around because can't get much worse. Yeah. Um, I, it's a good thing they have their pick. Oh, Oh wait, no. They don't. <laughs> now it is top three protected, so maybe they'll get so bad that uh, they won't have to give it up to the Golden State Warriors. But um, this uh, franchise is just a mess, and I, I I don't see it getting much better, no matter who the coach is, really. Yeah, there's definitely a few things that they're going to have to change. A few things they're going to have to fix before uh, this team is on its you know on an upward trend. But as of right now, I think that all they can really do is like you said, hope to land in a spot where that pick is protected because otherwise either they're in serious trouble for the foreseeable future. Yeah. All right. You ready to get into our real seven and seven? Oh yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's start out with number seven. Uh, We'll get more into the East, I think, later into this, but I wanted to single out a specific team in the East, um, the Boston Celtics. Uh, It hasn't been a good handful of weeks here. Um, 15 and 15. Sixth spot in the East, uh, a game above Charlotte and New York. Uh, that's the Knicks, not the Nets. The New York Knicks. Um, I'm not sure when we previewed the season, this is quite where we thought Boston would be. I, I think we thought there might be a slight drop back, but I don't think we saw 500 here. Um, what do you think is wrong with this team here? I, I, you know, I can't quite pinpoint exactly what's wrong when I'm looking at uh you know the games i'm looking at the roster i'm looking at their stats i'm looking at everything combined i think what they're really lacking is toughness um i know that they had some turnover 
Uh, they've got some of the guys from their playoff runs of previous years still there, but most everyone else is gone. Um, I know that to start off the season, I, I think I can't quite remember, but I think I might've had him a little higher than you did. Um, and I was going based off the momentum from last season. I thought they had a pretty good season. I thought they could build on that. Now at 15 and 15, not really horrible, you know, but they definitely dropped out of that race of top contenders um, along with uh, with the Bucks. It, both teams seem to be on a downward trend right now, whereas you have other teams like the Nets um, and the 76ers that are playing really well. So it, probably not the best of times to start playing bad. I still think that they're good enough to get you know get back on track and uh, sneak into the playoffs, but they've got some things to fix because uh, they're having some issues right now. Yeah, um, I think I I said they'd be a little bit down, you know, uh, just because I, I think we both agreed that they might have missed their window the last uh, year or two when the East, uh, at least top wise. I mean, we'll get into how bad the uh, bottom of the East uh, is right now, but uh, top wise. They're just right now. I, I think Brooklyn, Philly, Milwaukee are a class above everyone else, and um, it just might be uh, Boston's window was last year. They had a chance to beat the Heat, get into the finals. I, I think it would have been a very interesting series with the Lakers, with uh, Tatum and Brown in there, and um, you know, I. Don't think anybody thought this because he was, by the time he left, was a, about a fourth option. But I think they miss Gordon Haywood and his playmaking. Um, you know, you have Kimball Walker, Walker who's you know, struggles. I mean, the knee injury thing, I, you can't do anything about. But I don't think either of us think he's really a playmaker. He's a scorer, and I think he's a good teammate. But he, he's not creating shots for, you know, other people. Uh, Tatum and Brown aren't that type of player. I mean, they've gotten better as playmakers, but they aren't, you know, the type of playmakers. Really, the playmaker and, you know, quote-unquote point guard on that team was Gordon Haywood. He'd move the ball. He'd pass it around. He'd get other people involved. And that seems to be what's missing because right now it's sort of like, Jalen, it's your turn to shoot. Tatum, it's your turn to shoot. And, you know, when Kimba's healthy, he gets to shoot, but he's looked you know, really bad this year. I I don't think when we uh, had the Kimball Walker-Terry Rozier trade that we'd all be going Terry Rozier's the better player out of this. But um, anyway, uh, it, it just seems like really that uh, sort of unselfish playmaker really is what's missing from this team, uh, you know, post-defense as well. But uh, we knew that coming in. They've had that problem for a handful of years now. Yeah, I mean, when I look at this team, I'm looking back to, you know, a few years back when they were, you know, a game away from making it into the finals. They've got, what, four or five guys left from that squad. Uh, they they basically turned over a whole new team since then. They Now, they were still competitive, you know, in, in the following years, but they still couldn't get over the hump. Now, when you look at, for example, that last game, um, they were up basically for most of this game, and they ended up losing against t- to the Pelicans. It was it an overtime? Yeah, uh, but they collapsed. And, and again, I think that goes back to the toughness factor. I think that that's what they're lacking right now. They have uh, Tatum and Brett. Tatum and Brown had a really good game, but when you look up and down the rest of the stats for that particular game, no one else did anything. And, and I think they really need like one of those, you know, um, 
grinding, no, tough nose type of players, some, someone who's going to bring some sort of toughness uh, both on the defense and on the offensive side of the board because uh, I just don't see it right now. Now, I still think that they're a good enough team to clean it up and probably, you know, uh, make a run. But, boy, they got to change some things and they got to change them quick because, uh, you know, at the end of the season, it's, it's, I mean, it's still far away, but it's not that far away. So you got to really clean some things up. Yeah. Um, just curious on your take here. Um, the coach, I, I really, really like him. Um, but even in college, his, you'd say his offensive schemes were, you know, it's always been sort of, um, let your best players have the ball and create points. And, you know, and he's been a great defensive coach. The Celtics are still pretty solid on defense. They've had a little bit of a drop-off. Some of that could uh, also be attributed to Marcus Smart uh, being out and, uh, you know, Haywood leaving. But I, I, I just, he hasn't seemed to evolve as an offensive coach. Um, the Celtics' offense is still just your turn, my turn a lot of the time. And I, I just wonder if, if that becomes a worry coaching wise, I, I don't think you'd fire him or anything like that, but uh, it, it just seems he might be able to do better uh, scheming offensively. Uh, I, I don't give it quite the pass that I did his first couple of years in the league. Now, for the most part, I would agree with you. Uh, and most of the time I would say that you're spot on. Uh, but I, I think that right now the circumstances that he's under kind of warrant the type of offense that he's running. I mean, let's just take this last game into, you know, into consideration. Brown and uh, Tatum combined for uh, almost as many teams as the rest of, uh, I'm sorry, almost as many points as the rest of the team did combined. So he's just not getting enough production from anywhere else. Now, a lot of it has to do with departure of certain players. And listen, when, when he first came into the league, no one really thought that he was they were going to have a good season. No one thought that they would be contenders and he's kept them in the running basically year in and year out. So it's hard to really point the finger at him and say that he's to blame. Uh, and I know that's not what you're saying, but I just think that it's not so much on him. I know that his, like you said, his offensive game plan hasn't really evolved, but I think a lot of it also has to do with the type of players that they have on the team. Yeah. I, I, I it's a very, very big Nick pick. And, you know, I sort of, look the other way as I point the finger to Brad Stevens, but uh, it just sort of, uh, you know, something like Eric Spolstra now, you know, granted, you know, he had LeBron, Wade, and Bosch, but when he first got there, their offense was a little rigged, and, and then he figured out how to utilize it and get everybody involved, and their offense became one of the best in the league, and I, I just don't know if I've seen that quite that growth from uh, Brad Stevens, who, I, I mean, you'd consider an elite coach in this league, and I, I just, you know, expect more. I wouldn't expect more from, say, somebody like Flip Saunders Jr., who just, you know, got fired. But Brad Stevens, who I consider one of the best coaches in the league, I expect more. Now, you know, this is, I, I kind of brought up the same point to my wife. You know, she's a Celtic fan, and uh, it wasn't exactly the way you, you know, you, you phrased it, but it was pretty similar. And uh, her response to me was, Give him a LeBron, a Bosch, and a Wade, and see if he doesn't turn it around. So that's pretty much my answer to you. Is um, again, I think it's personnel. Yes, that's what I think it is. All right. Um, we'll move on to one closer to your heart here. 
Um, and a, probably a little scarier to your heart here. Um, Anthony Davis is out for X amount of weeks. They aren't really saying. Um, this is the second time he's been out with what is suspected as an Achilles injury because the first one was Achilles tendonitis. Then he went limping off in that uh, Nuggets game after he was getting tooled by Jokic. So clearly something was a little bit wrong. But uh, they said it's a calf strain with still some Achilles tendonitis, but uh, I'm not totally buying that. I, I believe Kevin Durant had a sprained ankle before his Achilles uh, popped, you know, when he came back. Um, worrying. Uh, because uh, I, I just look at it as you probably have to rest him. And really, in theory, you don't even want to play with this. You might have to rest him to the playoffs. And that starts opening numerous Pandora's boxes here about how much do you play LeBron? How much are you willing to drop in the Western Conference uh, to not overplay LeBron in these games and start compiling losses? So how much of a worry is this injury overall? How much worry is the Lakers season right now? Uh, how I'm, I'm not too worried about the season in general as a whole. I, I think that the Lakers are good enough to win games even without Davis. How worried am I for the team currently now? Very worried. Um, he's a big part of the team, both defensively and offensively. You've stated it before. Now, uh, you, I love Davis, but you – you're much higher on him than I am. Um, and this is with coming from a Laker fan who's got a tons of love. Don't get me wrong. Tons of love for, for Davis, but you are much higher on him because of uh, you dive a lot deeper into, into the, uh, you know, analytical statistics when it comes to players. So, you know, a lot more about how much she actually contributes both offensively and defensively. I, I watch as a fan and, you know, just from the eyeball test, I know how much he's going to be missed. Now, uh, the reports out there are saying that he's going to be out for maybe four weeks. They're saying that he's definitely going to be out till uh, after the all-star break. I would hope that wasn't the case, but I understand the need for, even if it's not as serious as we think it is, I understand the need for having to rest him and uh, trying to keep him as healthy as possible. You know, over the last three games, uh, the Lakers, they won at Minnesota 112 to 104. They lost to Brooklyn, uh, 98 to 109, and they also lost to Miami uh, in a close game, 94 to 96. They're currently in second place in the West behind Utah. Uh, they're two and a half games behind Utah right now, and they're only half a game in front of the Clippers, two games in front of the Suns, and three in front of uh, the Trailblazers. So it's a tight race, and that's the that's the biggest worry for me is how far down can they drop and still be in this race because the West is tight, man, especially when it comes to, you know, those top tier teams that are contending for playoff spots. It, it's a tight race. Um, now, yes, I'm worried. And, and uh, I still think they get in and I still think that they managed to get a pretty good spot, but I think the seating is going to be a big, you know, a big factor in these playoffs uh, when it comes to the Western conference. So, I think it's going to be important, but I think as long as they get in, they'll be okay. I, I'm I'm not too concerned for the long run, but I'm definitely concerned for the short term. Yeah, um, I just it, it's very weird how the the you see how this pl will play out because you know on one hand you you don't want to take any chances with Davis, so I I wouldn't rush him back, and you know uh, 
he pops his Achilles, it's over, over. I, you know, I, there's no way the Lakers are winning a title with the yeah. team without Anthony Davis. So that's why you have to be so careful. The thing I, I wonder about is just the strategy here because I don't know how much you want to put on LeBron James. And if the Lakers are playing without LeBron James and Anthony Davis, uh, they might as well just be the Timberwolves at that point. But um, how much do you put on James uh, to stop, you know, a, a free fall? Uh, I think if Davis comes back and they maintain a two or three seed, you know, that's not that big a deal. Even with Davis coming back, if they fall to like a four or five, I think that puts way more amount of pressure on them to get out of the uh, Eastern Conference or Western Conference. Uh, <laughs> Western Conference. I think they'd be fine getting out of the Eastern Conference. Um, but getting out of the Western Conference as a 4-5 seed would just be tough, even full strength. It's just you're playing quality team round one, round two, round three. You're playing really a team that could make the finals in each round. And... um the other thing here is I think by playoff time, the NBA might open the floodgates and we might be seeing a, a lot of fans in stands. You know, I think if the stands are empty and we're playing road games, that's one thing. But, you know, imagine like a Western Conference finals where you're having to play your uh, road games in Utah with a packed house. I mean, they're already letting fans in to a small number. But, you know, by June... I think that number might be hovering around capacity there because, you know, the NBA is just trying to get money left and right here, and playoff ticket sales would be a good way to get income here. So I'm just curious on your take. How much would you use up LeBron here in the regular season and try to maintain a 2-3? How much would you sort of scale it back here and just be like, we're fine four, five, or six. Let's just get healthy and ready for the playoffs. Well, there's a couple of things that play into that, uh, in my opinion. One, I think that, you know, I believe Schroeder uh, is on a seven-day uh, quarantine right now. Yes, he is. So I, I think he tested negative, uh, his last test. So getting him back, I think it's going to be helpful uh, because he just adds a little more depth. Now, as far as the LeBron situation is concerned, I don't think you have to push LeBron. I, I think that, you know, he's he's one of the best players in the league for a reason. He's one of the elites for a reason. He's probably one of the greatest of all time for a reason. He knows how to push himself. He knows when he needs to push himself. Uh, I think that he's kind of going to gauge the situation and uh, and he'll either scale it back or push it forward accordingly. So I, I don't think that as a coaching staff, you go to LeBron and you tell him, listen, we need you to step up your game. That's not the way you approach it. LeBron's going to take care of business on his own. Um, the biggest worry for me is definitely the seeding. Because like you said, if you end up with a low seed, you're going to play the, the top teams in the West. And the top teams in the West are no joke. So you want to try and get at least, at the very least, one of those mid-tier seedings so that you at least have the possibility to play in one of the, and, and it feels weird to say, but one of the weaker Western Conference teams. Um so I, I don't think that you really have to worry about LeBron and how much you have to ask out of him. Cause I think that nobody, you know, asks more from LeBron than LeBron himself. So I'm not, I'm not going to say that we need to, you know, expect X amount from him, but 
I think that he's going to set that uh, that pace on his own. Yeah. Um. What seed do you think would be the like closing off point that you think they could drop to and uh, not be able to win a championship? As a fan, or as a as like just as an analyst, because you'd say the tenth seed, and they'd be in the play-in game and <laughs> work their way through it. Uh, as I think that the sixth seed would probably be like the cutoff. Uh, I yeah. think that at that point they would definitely get into some uh, some really tough competition and face some really tough games. And like you said, with the possibility of more fans coming into the stands, you, you talk about a team like Utah. You know, first of all. You know the uh, the history between the Lakers and Utah. They always play each other really, really tough, and the fans love those those games. So a situation where you have either a Hobble Davis or a Davis-less Lakers, and you're going up against the Utah, that's trouble. That's I mean, it, it's hard enough to go up against them, you know, with the full squad, let alone you know, uh, a, not an entirely uh, you know fully functioned team. So I think six is probably where I would do uh, where I would feel safe, but. I really hope that they can maintain at least their positioning for the time being um, until he gets back healthy because it's going to be tough, man. Yeah. All right, let's move on to number three, and we're going to go with sitting of players. Uh, a couple teams have uh, started the sort of trade buyout uh, market, and uh, Blake Griffin, the Pistons have chose to set him and aren't going to play him until they can trade him, reach a buyout. Uh, same with uh, the Cavs and Andre Drummond. And... Uh, Barnes has been like hot and cold. He's been sitting some weird games and the Kings are just, well, I mean, the Kings are doing weird Kings things. One game he plays 40 minutes, the next game he sits out the whole game. Uh, Kings are the Kings. But um, it it caused a bit of an uproar. I was just curious on your take on this. Yeah, I, as a casual fan, I don't understand it. Um, I tune into games because I want to watch certain players or as I go to games because I want to watch certain players. Now I understand that right now you don't have the situation uh, for most teams, of, you know, dealing with fans and ticket sales and things like that. But that's always been the issue is as a fan, if I pay for a ticket to watch, you know, LeBron James and the LA Lakers, I want to watch LeBron James and the LA Lakers. Now I understand from the team standpoint though, them trying to keep certain guys healthy, keep them off the floor uh, because they possess a higher potential value healthy than they do injured, obviously. So I, I get it from a team standpoint as a fan, not a huge fan of it. Um, but I, I don't know. It's just, it's one of those murky situations that, you know, if it's your team doing it and it's going to benefit you in the long run, you probably don't mind as much, but if you're just a casual fan, you're probably like, listen, I pay to watch these guys play, play. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little hot and cold about it. Uh, I I look at it sort of more situation to situation, Uh, you know, like the Blake Griffin situation, you know, uh, he wasn't playing all that much anyway. And honestly, he wasn't playing all that well. And I think we all know his injury history and, you know, he's not in the Pistons future. Uh, you know, whether they can agree to a buyout, I, I don't know. I assume so, maybe. Uh, he, he's got a lot of money, too. I, I don't know how much of that they're going to eat and how much Blake's willing to give back. He's made a lot more money, you know, in his time than somebody like, say, an Andre Drummond. But, uh, I mean, 
the odds of him getting traded are like zero because nobody's going to give anything and want to eat that full salary. So he's definitely good. The Drummond one uh, hurts me a little. I, I just, why? Why aren't we playing him? He's functionally healthy. I, I To just be like, okay, we don't like it when players do it, when James Harden is, you know, tanking away a season till he gets traded. Why don't we have the same sort of thing for the Cleveland Cavaliers? And, you know, he's healthy. He's good enough to play. Send him out there and play. And once again, I, I think that will be a very – I mean, the other thing is, what if you don't reach a buyout or find a trade partner for him? I, what Do you just start throwing him out there? Because really – it doesn't benefit Andre Drummond for a buyout here at all. Uh, if he gets bought out, he loses some of that money on the contract, theoretically, and then uh, he becomes a free agent where he has to take a, a veteran minimum for a team for half the year. But then that contract's done. Uh, he becomes a free agent, but he loses his burn rights, which means he can't make as much money on the next contract because no team can offer more. And, you know, uh, that's stuff agents will know uh, about. And I don't think there's any way Andre Drummond would agree to a buyout unless they're going to pay him that full contract out, which, you know, I don't think they will. And I, I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm just curious what anybody would offer for Andre Drummond in a trade. See, it, it's it's a double standard, and I, I get where you're coming from. Uh, teams don't like it when players do it, but somehow it's okay for teams to do it whenever they whenever they see fit. Um, I don't agree with it. Like I said, as a casual fan, I'd, I I want to see these guys out there, uh, regardless of how much they're getting paid, and regardless of how good the team or how bad the team might be doing. And his situation is a little awkward uh, for several reasons that you've already stated, but. Jared Allen might get a chance, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, there's uh, some other guys out there, too, that I, I was kind of, when I was going through my list of potential buyouts, there's a couple guys that popped up where I'm like, wow, and this guy isn't even on the floor. It's kind of sad. Um, I, I hope that, you know, he gets to play so that he can kind of work something out financially in the long term next season. But it definitely feels like they're just going to keep him on the bench until they can either, you know, buy him out or, or basically send him elsewhere because it doesn't seem like they're giving in even in the slightest. So uh, it's a really tough situation to be in. Um, definitely want to, wouldn't want to be in his shoes uh, unless you were paying me that kind of money. Yeah. Then I definitely trade spaces with him, but um well, you'd be a foot and a half taller as well. <laughs> I, I listen, I take, I'll, just, I'll take that alone. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's really tough. Like I said, as a, just a casual fan, I, I, I don't like it. Um, I don't like the fact that there's double standard, but you know, it's the NBA and it's the rules and, until they work something out, you know, with the seat, with the CB, um, sorry, the, uh, collective bargain agreement, then I don't see things changing for the time being. So, yeah. All right. We'll move on to number four. We're back to the teams and uh, I don't think we can ignore them anymore. The Phoenix Suns have gotten really, really good the last uh, month and a half or so. Um, they're up to four, 19 and 10, uh, a couple games off the Clippers Lakers. Uh, uh, 
more games off the Jazz. We'll get to the Jazz uh, later. But uh, what do you make of this Phoenix Suns team here? Real contender or a fun regular season team that will lose in the first round per always Chris Paul? I, I, okay. And I say this with all due respect. I still think they're, you know, a one and done type team. Now that's not to say that they don't have a chance to be contenders uh, because they're playing really good ball right now. I believe they're top 10 in defense and they're currently number eighth in total offense. So they're, they're playing really good ball. Um, They're currently standing in fourth in the West. Like you said, Um, they're four and a half games out of first, I believe. Yes. So they're within, you know, punch. They're within within reach uh, of making a run. The problem is that they play out in the West, and that's the biggest issue. Is that no matter what, even if you get into the playoffs, even if you get a pretty decent seating, you're still going to have to face off against these teams in the playoffs on a seven game series. So I just don't see them being able to hold on during the playoffs. But man, they're playing really good. Yeah, ball. right now they'd be playing Portland in the first round of the playoffs. I mean, you know, that, I think that'd be a really good series, but I, I still think that they'd fall just short. I, I, I like, I like Portland more as a playoff team than a regular season team, and uh, the opposite can be said for the Suns. I think that I like them better for the regular season than I do for the playoffs. So, uh, but with all that being said, I still think they deserve some respect. They're playing really good ball right now, and uh, I'm glad that you chose them. Um, you know, for our list of seven on seven because. Uh, there's not a lot of people talking about them. They're starting to you know, get a little bit of a buzz, but there's still not enough people talking about them, and I think they're playing really good ball right now. Yeah, um, I, I'm very entertained. I really enjoy watching them, and it's not just because Eddie Johnson is calling the games. Uh, sweet voice on Eddie. I love falling asleep to Eddie Johnson calling the Phoenix Suns games. It's almost as sweet as the guy's stroke was back in the day, but uh, love Eddie Johnson. Love watching the Phoenix Suns play. Really, really fun roster to watch as well uh they can go many different ways uh and uh, i think monty williams has done a really good job getting them to buy in on the defensive end i mean they have enough playmakers on offense and chris paul uh can run that team and uh grind away at offense uh as well as anyone in this league um playoff wise though if you ask me i'm not sold that they get out of the first round uh but uh i, I really enjoy watching them and i'll be very entertained watching them in the playoffs. I, I will say this, that I'm definitely on the verge of becoming a believer. I think that if they can keep up this type of consistent game and, you know, my issue right now is the fact that there's four guys on that roster that are averaging uh, 30 minutes plus per game. And that makes it a little scary because you have, uh, I believe Crowder and Johnson are the only two guys that are just below 30 minutes. But under that, you got Booker, you've got Paul, uh, bridge i can't remember who the fourth guy is but all these guys are averaging you know over 30 minutes per game and my issue is that how how much can you really run these guys through a whole season at at that type of pace and then expect you know a similar type of performance when it comes to the postseason that's the part that scares me the most i just don't think they're as deep as we'd like them to be but their core group of players are playing really good ball and chris paul man I didn't think he was going to play as well as he's playing this season, but he's still got some juice left, man. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll move on to the Eastern Conference. And I, I just wanted to talk to you about the Eastern Conference as a whole here. Um, I'm only seeing three teams that legitimately we can talk about as contenders here. And 
I don't even think it's close. I, I think you have Sixers, Nets, Bucks, and then there is a Grand Canyon-sized chasm to maybe the next three in Pacers, Raptors, Celtics. And uh, after that, it, it gets very, very ugly. Um, This is just a bad conference right now. I mean, the bottom half of this, Knicks, Hornets, Bulls, Heat, Hawks, Magic, Wizards, Cavs, Pistons, all under 500, um, and the Celtics sitting right at 500. I uh, just, are you seeing anybody that is contenders in the East outside of the big three, or you just see it as a large chasm like I do? Yeah, I'm kind of on the same boat as you. Uh, when I'm looking at my list, I, I basically, I'm looking at the top 10 teams, 76ers at uh, first place with a record of 20 and 11. The Nets in second with 20 and 12, Bucks 18, 13, Pacers, Raptors, Celtics, Knicks, Hornets, Bulls, and then the Heat to close off the top 10. When I'm looking at that list, I think, like you said, there's three teams, the the Sixers, the Nets, and the Bucks. And then I, I've got maybe a tie for like a fourth team between the Celtics and the Heat. And that's got nothing to do with what they're doing right now. It's got more to do with what they've done in the past couple seasons. I think that both of those teams are built well enough so that they could possibly become contenders. But as it sits right now, it's still the top three and everything else on there is kind of, con- uh, it's bad. Nice you can just say it. It's bad. I, I try to be the nice one on this show. You already know that. Uh, so I try to watch my, my awards. Carefully. The Knicks are the seventh seed for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's God. Yeah. It's bad. Okay. When I, when we do playoff betting at the end of the season and I'm like, who do you have in the Nets Knicks series? The, the Nets are only favored by 700 to one doing this series. Listen, those odds are pretty good, man. I might jump on that, take a flyer on it, but no. Uh, yes, yeah, I look yeah. forward to Julius Randle guarding Kevin Durant. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm with you, though. I think it's the top three, and uh, I think it's pretty much it for now uh, with the possibility of one of those two teams that I mentioned uh, sneaking in as a fourth contender, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, the only thing I could say is that one seed I think is really, really important because uh, you go from playing one of those teams in the uh, bottom half uh, to playing either the Bucks, Nets, or the Sixers in that second round. Uh, two of those are going to have a war with each other, and one of them's going to get a Pacers, Celtics, Raptors matchup in that second round. So uh, I, I think that one seed's really, really important. It might have been the year for the Bucks to uh, <laughs> not mess around and go all out in the regular season. I know. I mean, now they're still within reach. You know, they're not really far off. There are, I believe, two games or two and a half games. Yeah. Behind, but uh, yeah, man, that one seed's going to be really important in the East. All right. We we touched on the Eastern Conference. We're going to go back out west. Uh I just wanted to talk about the Oklahoma City Thunder here. Um they aren't awful. Uh I think me and you probably had the way way under on this team. I I, I think we were in the teens and they've already won in the teens of wins here. 12 and 18. Um I can't say enough about uh Gilgis Alexander and uh, Lou Dort, uh, they've been playing their butts off. But uh, I-, I was just curious, have you watched the Thunder play much? And uh, 
They're the best team against the spread uh, gambling-wise. So, I mean, this has been a real shock how good they've been able to play, even though they essentially <laughs> gutted their whole roster to tank for a number one pick. Yeah, how's that working out for them? Um, I haven't, uh, unfortunately, I haven't watched much of the uh, the OKC this season. Now, part of it has to because I didn't have such high expectations for them. They're currently, what, 13th in the West? Yes. Um but they're tied with uh, uh, Sacramento and uh, New Orleans, so it's really eleven to thirteen is all the same. So it's not great, but definitely a lot better than we thought it would be. Um, we thought this was a team that was literally just going to be in complete rebuild mode, and they were going to, uh, you know, start kind of uh, from the bottom up. Now they're playing good ball, with all things considered. So. A bit of a surprise. Um, now, I haven't had the opportunity to watch as many of those games as you have, I'm sure. But uh, the w- like the few games that I've actually watched, uh, they're, they're pretty impressive. And I have to say that they've got something going on. Uh, I can't quite pinpoint exactly what it is, but it seems like their nucleus of players is playing really well together. And now, I don't know if it's coaching or, or if it's just a momentary type of thing, you know, where the first, you know, half of the season they're going to play really well and then the second half they're going to be a completely different team i don't know what i don't know what what to make of it but yeah they're playing really good ball and and uh, i think that they definitely deserve some credit for their performance uh, as of late yeah uh i just wanted to poke a couple questions here um technically speaking they did gut their roster to try to uh get a top three pick um that's not going all that well um I don't think you get rid of uh, Shea Gildish-Alexander. I, I, you know, I think you probably pay him when he comes up down the line and he becomes a mainstay. Uh, Dort, though, uh, he's become an elite-level role player and possibly uh, one of the best 3 and D guys in the league. Um, if you watched him guard LeBron the other night, uh, you know, play in the Lakers. He, he's just got that body. He can drain threes. He, he's just really, really good role player. I mean, high-level role player. If you were OKC, would it cross your mind to maybe take some offers on him? Because honestly, right now, I, I think like the Nets don't have a first-round pick to give, but if I was the Nets or, you know, some other team looking for a high-level, you know, 3-and-D role player, Dort would be at the top of my list, and OKC could get another first-round pick, I'm guessing, for him. Yeah, I think the question really depends on are your expectations still to tank? Uh, you know, not not necessarily tank, but are your expectations still to, you know, get um, high enough, uh, get bad enough to where you get a high pick? I think that's what it's going to come down to. If you think that you could still do it, then yeah, maybe you move him because he's got a lot of value right now, but that's not to say that his value won't stay the same for the entire season. Um, I I don't know. I I think it's, it's really tough. I think they've been playing too well to really consider, you know, cleaning house again. Well, yeah, that was, that was going to be my other question. Do you take somebody who you'd want when this thing is built, I mean, essentially that would be the exact guy you'd want when you get your couple high-level prospects. You'd want Lou Dort in there. So it, it just, do you want to risk bringing that first-round pick and getting rid of Dort because he's screwing you over right now in the draft lottery? Or do you take him, use him as another build a block, and pay him in a couple years? 
Yeah, I see. Personally, me, I, I, if I was a fan, I would say let's let's keep him. Let's try to lock him up eventually, um, because he is playing really well now. The question is, can he do this consistently? Because uh, you know we have to see it for a really long period of time, and I think that's probably going to be the question when it comes to upper brass is. Can he do this for a long time for the foreseeable future? If so, then I think that he becomes one of the building blocks. Um, but his value is really high right now. And I think that you definitely have to ask yourself, can he maintain this type of play? Can his value get even higher? Because if it can't, if this is where it plateaus, then you probably have to consider it, especially if you're thinking that he's not in your future. You have to consider moving him and getting something really good in return now while he's still, you know, a hot commodity. If I was somebody like the Pacers, I'd I'd be staring at him because I I think that might move you up a little bit. Maybe we could talk ourselves into four contenders into the East. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's definitely one of those players, the way he's playing right now, that he could definitely catapult one of those, a team like the Pacers, like you said, into a a contender role, uh, so to speak. Yeah. All right, so... We talked about him two weeks ago on the 7-on-7. Seven seven. Um, they continue to not lose and win every game by 20 points since then. Um, the Utah Jazz, uh, they're half running away with this thing in the West. Um, they are now 24-6. and six. I believe they're 22-3 and three in their last, like, 25 games. Um, this team is just playing ridiculously well and uh, killing everyone and certainly have separated themselves, I think, from really everyone so far all year where you get a blip of four games where you're playing really well, then you get a blip of two games where you're playing really well. Uh, the Jazz have just put together 25 games of playing really, really good basketball. I mean, even for the Clippers to beat them a, a couple nights ago, uh, they just had to play lights out and they still barely barely got by this Utah Jazz team. So what are you making of this Jazz team? And uh, at what point do we go, these guys are a contender in the West to make the finals? Oh, man, listen, these guys, I think it's now. I think it, we have to talk about it now. They're legit. I think these guys are definitely contenders. Um, their play has shown it. Obviously, they lost that game against the Clippers. I believe it was a nine-game win streak up to that point. So they've been playing really good, solid basketball throughout the season there's you know that's the reason why they're in first place right now um they're definitely the feel-good story of the season and i think that it's probably going to be one of those uh cinderella type stories now it's hard to call the first place team a cinderella but you know i would no one really expected them to be this good and the fact that they're playing this well and very consistent pace I think it's it's shocking some people. Uh, it's definitely shocking me, but I'm definitely enjoying watching these guys. Man, they're playing really good. Um, now, it, it, for the long term, do I see them, you know, continuing this type of pace? I think I do. I, I think that they've shown enough so far this season, you know, with uh, with their current roster, that it doesn't it doesn't really matter the rotation that they use. They're, they're being successful regardless. And and even when they're going up against the teams with the big marquee names, these guys aren't step. They're, they're not backing down, man. They're, they're stepping up and they're fighting and, and it shows. I, I just have a lot of respect for this team as a whole right now. I think that um, they're probably one of the scarier teams in the NBA. And I think that people shouldn't really sleep on them. I know that a lot of people are saying, well, this is probably kind of a, you know, uh, a momentary type thing. They'll come back down to earth. I don't see it happening. 
uh, from what I've seen, I think that they're here and they're here to stay and they're going to be one of the tougher teams to face off this season. Yeah. I, I, I'm a believer right now. And, uh, honestly, I put them right next to the Lakers. Uh, the Clippers are, uh, uh further down, uh, to me than the Utah jazz. Cause I look at this team and I, I just, I see a lot of talent. I see a lot of skill. Now, if one of those big guys gets hurt, they can't afford to lose Rudy Gobert. They can't afford to lose Donovan Mitchell. But I think even they could get away with losing Bogdanovich or Conley for a little while. I mean, for not for while. this, not yeah. for the season. But I, I think as long as they keep those two linchpins of Gobert and Mitchell in there, um, they can maintain this streak. And honestly, I, I think the West uh, one seed is probably theirs for good because – I don't think they're going to lose home games. They never lose home games, and they've been playing and shooting lights out on the road, too. I mean, they're plus-minus on the road. They're averaging seven, uh, uh, plus seven on the road. Uh, that's just ridiculous right now, and uh, I'm a buyer in the Utah Jazz, and uh, I've watched them most of the year, and it's just really, really impressive the way they're playing. They're shooting the ball lights out. They're moving the ball uh really like the old school uh, Spurs teams from the mid 2000s. And uh, you know, their defense is just um, when Gobert's sitting in that paint, uh, people aren't getting in the paint and scoring. Yeah. They're playing really good team basketball. Exactly. Like you said, it, it reminds me of the Spurs, maybe not quite as um, eye catching. Yeah. As those Spurs teams, but you know, still a uh, very good team basketball. Um, and you have guys like Mitchell who's, playing at a really high pace. I believe he's averaging, what, 24.2 points per game right now. Um, I think the biggest story so right now for me is the fact that there might they might be uh, snubbed during the All-Star break, um, which is a little shocking because when you look at, at this team, even um, Conley, I mean, he, he's... Yeah, he's playing record. great. Yeah, I know. Uh, he's got to get some sort of recognition, this is the best team in the NBA right now. And I, I feel like for him to be playing, you know, he's probably one of the best. I know that you've, you've got Goldberg, you've got all the, you know, really good guys. But to me, I feel like he's making this engine run. I feel like he's the most important part for this team. And for him to not begin the type of recognition that I think he deserves for running the number one, uh, you know, seated team, not just in the West, but overall. I think he deserves a little more credit than, than he's getting right now. Yeah, I, I think this is sort of what they thought they were going to get last year, and uh, it just never worked out. He didn't get comfortable early, then he got hurt and was banged up most of the year, and then, uh, you know, in the bubble. But uh, he, he's come back this season and just played ridiculously well, and uh, this Jazz team is really, really fun to watch. All right, Achilles, thanks for joining me on the NBA 7-on-7. Seven seven. Where can we find you, buddy? Oh, as always, you can find me on Twitter at TD Achilles. You can also find the rest of my stuff on our website, which is greenlightnetwork.org. All right, we're going to bring in Rita Cinema to do our movie review. We got a good one this time, Judas and the Black Messiah. It was on HBO Max as an early release drop. It also played in some theaters, but uh, we watched it on HBO Max. Judas and the Black Messiah. I was really excited for it. What did you make of it, Rita Cinema? Well, I was really looking forward to seeing this uh, film as well, and I was not at all disappointed. A uh, good movie. Um, this this movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, is directed by Shaka King, who also wrote the screenplay with Will Burson. And the film, um, in, in case you don't know, is um, historically based. It's a 
drama uh, that's true uh, about Fred Hampton and the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party, how they influenced the community um, and posed as a threat to the FBI and uh, most more specifically to J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI at the time. Um, Hoover is played by Martin Sheen. Um, and he, Hoover became obsessed with bringing down, um, as with many um, uh, civil rights groups at the time, but the Black Panther Party and in bringing down specifically Fred Hampton, who he labeled as, along with other uh, uh, black leaders in the 60s, as the Black Messiah. He said, this could be the Black Messiah. We have to bring this man down. Um, so the, this is a, you know, a, a, this is not a biography of Fred Hampton. Um, it's really more a slice of life uh, at this point. Um, and the story takes place in the late 60s when um, 17-year-old petty criminal named Bill O'Neill, William O'Neill, uh, played by Lakeith Stanfield, um, is arrested in Chicago for attempting to hijack a car while posing as a federal official. Um, he's approached by the FBI special agent Roy Mitchell, played by played well by Jesse Plemons, who offers to have O'Neill's charges dropped if he works undercover for the FBI um, in the Black Panther Party. So O'Neill is assigned to infiltrate the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party and to get close to its leader, Fred Hampton. And Fred Hampton uh, is played by Daniel Kaluuya. And he's referred to, Fred Hampton is referred to as the chairman. He's the chairman of the Black Panther, Chicago Black Panther Party. So as I said, it's kind of a slice of life of Hampton's rise, um, a picture of his passion, his charisma, and what he did to build a coalition, uh, which is what he's actually best known for, um, of rival gangs and militia groups that included Blacks, Latin Americans, and uh, poor white citizens, mostly who lived in South Chicago and West areas of Chicago that were quite crime-ridden and poverty-stricken, um, and where the police were constantly harassing people as well. So you get to this picture of Hampton. Um, it's remarkable what you see in him as this young man who is um, has these great persuasive skills, um, so much so that he brings bitter enemies together in order to um, build the Black Panther Party and to um, actually, you know, oppose the police, uh, when uh, the Chicago police. Um, and the fact that he built this coalition really was what made him uh, the great leader that he was at that time. Um, anyway, he, he, um, this scared Hoover and the FBI, of course, um, and he was determined to, as he said, neutralize Hampton. And I'll just let you guess what neutralize means. Uh, and, but you can guess, I think. Um, uh, anyway, um, so uh, O'Neill, uh, William O'Neill, who they have hired to infiltrate um, the Black Panther Party, and O'Neill is a black man too, uh, of course. Um, he starts to grow close to Hampton. Um, he, uh, and he works with Hampton and the others in building these community outreach growth, uh, groups, such as the Free Breakfast for Children program. And that was the other thing, actually, that the Black Panthers were well known for. It wasn't just as a protest party. Um, they wanted to uh, 
go into the communities and do things that would improve uh, their communities by offering, uh, as I said, free breakfast for children program. That was the one that was best known. Um, the, the film also tells the story of Hampton's relationship with Deborah Johnson, played by Dominic Fishback. And um, she's a fellow Black Panther Party member who eventually gives birth to Hampton's child after Hampton is dead, I might say. Um, and the two of them are still living today. Uh, uh, both um, she, Deborah Johnson uses a different name. She changed her name to a um, when she uh, converted to Islam. And... Um, uh, the, the child's name is Fred Hampton Jr. Of course, he's an adult now. But uh, O'Neill begins to relay intel to Mitchell, and um, who in turn compensates him with money. He makes money by doing this, and he keeps himself out of trouble. Um, and O'Neill then begins to rise through the ranks and is promoted to security camp at captain. So, um, you know, as the story goes on, you find out that Hampton is kind of, uh, he's arrested and put in jail on some trumped up charges. While he's in jail, there's this big shootout with the police and they burn down the Panther uh, offices. And then Hampton gets out in order to um, appeal his um, uh, imprisonment. And during that time, they're, they're um, you know, there's quite a bit that goes on with the interaction with the police. They rebuild their offices and, and that sort of thing uh, while he's out. But he loses his appeal, and he's going to have to go back to, to prison. And so then the focus becomes on that night, his last night of freedom. But I want to mention a couple of things that I think are really important to this film. What the, the, the real keys, the, the focus to this film is, I think one of them is the effectiveness of Hampton as he rises to power um, and um, the story of, of what he does to do this and then his demise as he is ultimately drugged and murdered uh, before he goes back to prison. The other is the center of the story. I mean, if we've got a black messiah, we've got to have the Judas. And of course, the Judas is Bill O'Neill, uh, who was, you know, working um, within infiltrating the Black Panther Party. And um, it, in the end, Bill O'Neill does, uh, uh, on that last night before Hampton's going to uh, go back to prison, he drugs Hampton. And um, so that they want the FBI wanted him drugged so that he couldn't fight back and he couldn't get away. And apparently, according to the autopsy report on Hampton, he had so much fentanyl in his system. Now, you know, where it came from, no one can actually say for sure, except that O'Neill was charged with drugging him. Um, but he had enough in his system to kill him even without them. Uh, shooting him. So, it, you know, it really is also about the story of Bill O'Neill, and I think um, Hampton's story is riveting, but it's really O'Neill who takes your attention, and I think, um, you know, I almost wanted a little bit more, because you can see how conflicted he is, um, and I sort of wanted a little bit more of that story, too. I, I thought that was a, a good um, part of the story. So, Anyway, just to wrap up the, uh, you know, the summary of the plot summary, um, you know, he's on the night before he's going to be taken back to prison. They're all together in the Black Panther or, or no, in his home. Now I can't remember if it's his home or the Black Panther headquarters, but they're all together. And one of the gang leaders who's part of the Pan Panther organization offers Hampton, I think this is just 
uh, you know, says a great deal about this story and about Hampton, offers him a lot of money to flee the country, to get away. And Hampton says, no, uh, he's not taking it, but he instead, he orders the group uh, to establish a trust fund with the money in the name of one of their members who sacrificed his life in one of the police uh, shootouts. So I, I think that tells you a, a, a lot about um, uh, Fred Hampton. Anyway, that's a little summary. I've got some other comments about, you know, what I think of the movie. I'll see what you have to say. Yeah, uh, a handful of things struck me about this film. Uh, one, uh, the cinematography on it, I thought was just uh, really, really good. That was the first thing I noticed. It it looked just incredible, and uh, for somebody who really hadn't uh, directed any movies, I just thought that was really, really impressive with the way he was able to make this thing look. I, I thought it looked really, really nice, and uh, just that brought me in to you know the whole plot of the film and uh i thought the performances were just outstanding i i I can't complain about really anyone's performance i thought uh kula lale's performance was really good uh satterfield's performance was great and i really like jesse plemons as well i just thought everybody was really really good um and uh, the only thing uh, negative I can say is I-, I thought the first half, maybe just the first third of the film was a little bit slow uh, to get into really where you wanted to be. And uh, I-, I think once he was released from prison, I-, I just thought the movie really started to pick up steam and uh, draw you in there. Well, a lot of the early part of the movie was about him building relationships with people, but I liked that, but I could see how... It, you know, somebody might think it was a little bit slow. I have to say, I was totally riveted by this movie. I was never bored. I thought the performances were outstanding, all of them. I thought um, Daniel Kaluuya was passionate. I mean, you would have thought it was Fred Hampton. He was, and Lakeith Stanfield, I, I just thought his face told you everything. He was, you could see that he was conflicted, but he was also kind of a rotten guy and he was committed to getting money and serving himself. Um, and actually, I'm going to mention Dominique Fishback too, who played Deborah Johnson, because I thought she gave a great performance as well. She was very strong and influential um, in Hampton's life, and yet she was also warm and um, uh, um, subtle in her way, and just seemed uh, like a wonderful match for him. She she brought out a lot in him uh, to make him a better person, a stronger person as well, too. So anyway, all three of those performances, and I agree, Jesse Plemons as well, were just outstanding. And I just noticed, I, it's interesting this year, Shaka King is a relatively new director too. I mean, in terms of um, it, this year we've had, it's been interesting that we've had a number of really good movies that centered in the 60s, for one thing, uh, One Night in Miami, this film, Judas and the Black Messiah and the Sh- Trial of the Chicago Seven. Um, all three of them somewhat uh, rooted in, at, at least if they weren't true stories, they were rooted in true characters, uh, to true people, I mean, real people. And um, really, other than uh, Fincher and uh, uh, Sorokin, um, there have been a lot of films by really relatively new um, and I don't mean that they've never directed films or, or television, but we've had so many new directors and they, they write the screenplays and direct these films. And it's 
just been an outstanding year for that. I think. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, Shaka King, pretty new director. Uh, I, the uh, Promising Young Woman uh, was, I mean, yeah. she wasn't new to directing, but she was new to feature-length film. Uh, she right. had made most of her bones on uh, TV shows, and it's a much different type film. And then uh, Regina King, who has, Regina King. Uh-huh. Who has you yeah. know, she's a very, she's acted forever, and, you know, I think she knows what to do. But to put out a feature-length film yeah, like that. that was uh, really good. <laughs> for the, really being the first time, that was really, really impressive, and uh Really, I thought this one was the this one I really enjoyed, and uh, I thought just Shaka King really sort of yeah. put a notch on my book. Where yeah. you know now I'm like, oh, let's see what next film he comes yeah. out because I'm like yeah. this one was really really good. Uh, on your dominant fixed back, uh, she had a great performance, and she is a relatively mm-hmm. uh, you know new actress. New. This was mm-hmm. only her third or fourth film that she'd ever done. And the others were, you know, very, very small type films. Uh, this was going to be a big film until, you know, COVID and they had to pull it yeah. and, you know, re-release it into HBO Max, which, you know, I, I think really hurts it because this would be one that I think would hit the theaters and it would grow a following, you know, month by month. Yes, they, absolutely. As, yeah. Especially as the Academy Awards came. And I, I, I'm i scared it might get a little lost because it was just sort of an HBO Max dump here. And if yeah. you weren't paying attention or into the streaming, you wouldn't know this film was out there. Well, I worry about that, too, and I hope that is not the case. I really hope people watch this movie. It, it's an excellent movie, but I, I I fear it will get lost and it'll be overlooked, and I, I hate that. I really uh, do. I want to also say that I agree with you. The scenes uh, in the movie were great, and the way they blended um, you know, the movie scenes, uh, the film movie scenes with old footage uh, was good. And then they used a lot of music that would really set the scene for the 60s. Um, I, I thought that was well done. It was just well integrated the way they did that. And I do want to say there was an original song, however, that, that by her, that H-E-R. Um, <laughs> I'm an old woman. I don't, you yes. know, her is what they That's say. Fine. Uh, anyway, I, I actually, I like her. And... Um, this song is a great song to wrap up the mute movie with, and it, even though it was a, is a current song, was had a very 60s uh, sound to it uh, as well. And, um, you know, at the end there, they, um, they have all that archival, I, I just thought um, it was great the way they ended it with that archival footage of Hampton's speeches and his funeral procession and the, an interview then with O'Neill that he gave in 1989. And uh, apparently he continued to work as an informant for the FBI. They put him into a witness protection program for a while, but he left it. And then after he did this interview in 1989, where, I, you know, he then committed suicide. So, um, you know, I think that was a very complex man there that he had an interesting uh, uh I mean, take on all of it. Um, he was a pretty selfish person, and yet um, you could tell he admired Fred Hampton, too. He didn't like what he did, I think, although he would never admit that. He would never admit that. Um, I think also people ask about a movie like this, anytime it's based, you know, on true, uh, uh, on, on true events and characters, how much of it is historically correct and truthful, and I, I did a little looking on that, and 
couple of things. First of all, Shaka King, I think this is noteworthy too, in terms of evaluating the movie. Um, Shaka King work, made a point and the production company made a point of working with Fred Hampton Jr. and his mother um, as consultants because they didn't want to get into another situation like the Green Book where the family is outraged by the film and um, they weren't consulted, etc. And so apparently, you know, the um, Fred Hampton Jr. and his mother were there during most of the filming and they had input. They were uh, into whether, you know, how things looked. At. Now that gives their point of view, of course. I also read that apparently records from the police, the Chicago police, who are the ones actually who shot Hampton, not the FBI, the police did. And uh, records from both the police and the FBI, get, oh, I'm sure this won't shock you, are very sketchy. <laughs> Um, and um, apparently, uh, there are a lot who think whatever is left is lies anyway. But uh, you well, know, I we can't can say get that. corruption in the Chicago Police Department. Yes, uh, uh, that can be another. And topic certainly, some when it comes day. to yeah, <laughs> but but I think it did give a pretty accurate view of the times and uh, the the Black Panther Party. And I think um, many, uh, sadly, uh, you know, gave a good picture of the some of the social justice and brutality issues of the police, which still exist between the police and the Black community, not just in Chicago, but all over. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that come back. I, I do the, I do have one little thing I'd like to bring up that the only thing that didn't, you know, you, you did think about, if you know that at the time, Bill O'Neill is 17 years old and Fred Hampton is 21. They murdered him at the age of 21. And um, you look at these actors, Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya and um, Lakeith Stanfield, and they obviously do not <laughs> look like they're 17 and 21. They look like men who are in their 30s. I, I don't know how old they are, but, um, but I do think that... Um, that was the only that was the correct way to portray the characters it would it, i don't think they could have gotten a similar depth of performance uh from young younger actors not i mean there are many good young actors out there but these uh actors did a great job in these roles yeah uh also jesse Plemons isn't even looking like a high school child no. anymore when he's pretty <laughs> much had that face for the first 20 years of his acting career so yeah, yeah. um Award-wise, this didn't get much love for the Golden Globes. Yeah, uh, now no, that's what worries me. Now, uh, the Golden Globes uh, are a joke. We might get into that more on Friday. But uh, not even like the Screen Actors Guild really g gave it much love, only an outstanding performance. Uh, and uh, neither did the Writers Guild, just an original screenplay. So it, it, it just doesn't seem like it's hitting in the awards circuit now, you know. Take what you will about the Golden Globes, but I do hold the like Screen Actors Guild awards in a little more thing. Do you think it's worthy of um, award honors? I thought it was. See, I, I liked it much better than the tr the trial of the Chicago Seven, and that got award nominations all over the place. Mm -hmm. Yes, I I'm very disappointed that it hasn't been acknowledged. That's why I was saying before. I just think that that bothers me a lot because I think this is um, really I. I liked One Night in Miami, but I think this is a better film than that. And I yeah. think it, I like The Trial of Chicago 7 quite a bit, um, but I would hold this equal to it, uh, at least. Uh, it, and I can understand why some people might um, 
think it's better, particularly if you're not a big Sorkin yes. fan. I, um, I'm not a big anyway, Sorkin no, director. And, and I, yeah, I think uh, I can, I can, I, I'm disappointed it hasn't gotten a, more attention. I don't know what will happen in the Academy Award nominations, but so far it's, I think it's been overlooked a little bit. Yeah. Of course, I also think the Five Bloods has been overlooked a little. Bit well, too. yes. So, uh, you know, that, but I, I, that was a big time director. Might hit on uh, some Academy Award nominations. Okay, so what did you give this movie overall? Well, I gave it. I, I think this is an excellent film. I think it is informative and thoughtful. I think it helps you understand the history of the social justice movie movement and community activism that was important in it, it, that was as important in the '60s as it is now. Um, and I highly recommend it and give it an eight. I think there was excellent acting. The production elements and the music are worth uh, watching it and certainly worthy of an eight. Yeah. Uh, guess what? I gave it an eight as well. So, uh, oh, we agree. Like two eights on the year so far. This and Tenet have been probably my two favorite movies so far. So, uh, I'm really hoping. Well, I'm uh, giving a lot of eights. I'm kind of an easy target. I'm hoping when the Academy Award nominations come at like the end of the month, uh, these will, uh, will be in there. Um, that's our show. We're going to do, I believe, Nomadland next. Uh, we'll also yep. have a Golden Globes, uh, pick them a show uh probably come out on friday so uh no bad land and then i i believe we'll do the tom hanks movie too if we can ever get it watched yeah <laughs> too many movies to watch that's our show and we're out that's right you can find us at greenlightnetwork.org greenlight network on facebook and youtube on gln champ 5 and that's our show and we're out